This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. I'm Max Flight. Now, as you know by now, we're on hiatus for the summer of 2023. We don't like leaving you without an episode to listen to, so we have another replay from the past. This time, it's Eileen Bjorkman from episode 618. That was published August 26th, 2020. Eileen is an author. She tells veterans' stories. She's also a speaker, and she's a retired U.S. Air Force colonel with over 700 hours of flying time as a flight test engineer in 25 different types of military aircraft. Those were primarily the F-4, F-16, C-130, and C-141. Eileen holds an air transport pilot rating. She's also a CFI with more than 2,000 hours of flying time. And she owns an aerobatic airplane the decathlon. Now, Eileen had just published her book titled Unforgotten in the Gulf of Tonkin, a story of the U.S. military's commitment to leave no one behind. And it tells the story of a U.S. Navy pilot named Willie Sharp. He had to eject from his F-8 fighter after being hit over North Vietnam. In addition to her books, Eileen has published many articles in technical journals. She has both MS and BS degrees in aeronautical engineering from the Air Force Institute of Technology in Ohio. She also has a BS in computer science from the University of Washington in Seattle. And also, she has a PhD in systems engineering from the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Now, co-hosting for this interview were Max Trescott and David Vanderhoof, so you'll hear them. Also, Along the way, Eileen mentions the name of a person that I would subsequently interview the following year. Now, I had no recollection of Eileen mentioning this individual's name. And so it was kind of fun to hear a familiar name when I re-listened to this interview. So here's our conversation. Again, we're speaking with Eileen Bjorkman. And Eileen's uh, new book is Unforgotten, that's right, Unforgotten in the Gulf of Tonkin, and the subtitle is A Story of the U.S. Military's Commitment to Leave No One Behind, which we can uh, talk about the specifics of the story, but before we do that, Eileen, I'm kind of fascinated by the the commitment to leave no one behind. I mean, certainly uh, there are a, a number of folks that Unfortunately, we're left behind. We're not recovered over the over the years, over the different conflicts. But maybe tell us a little bit about this commitment. Is is this something that's you know sort of uh, you know a notable feature of the, the U.S. military? Uh, do others kind of treat it the same way? Well, I think in you know in terms of search and rescue, you know combat search and rescue, which isn't necessarily just picking up down pilots. You know, it could be something like a, a Jessica Lynch kind of scenario that you know that we had back in I think the two thousand three time frame. Um, but there is definitely a commitment on the U.S. military's part to try to rescue our people who get in trouble, you know, behind enemy lines or, or near enemy lines, and. A lot of other countries have that commitment as well, but our country really goes well beyond that. Um, you know, like you said, there are a lot of people missing from prior conflicts, so obviously we haven't always been able to, you know, to bring everybody home, you know, get, get everybody back. Um, there's actually still about 80,000 people, uh, more than 80,000 people missing since uh, World War II on. 
Um, but we alone continue to search for those people. Now, not all those people are, are recoverable. Some of them are in situations where you're just never going to be able to, to find them. But in cases where they can be found, we have a, uh, the, the DPAA, which is the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency uh, that, that works for the Pentagon. You know, they, they, every year, go and investigate crash sites. Uh, and, and it's not just Air Force you know, people, but you know, it's predominantly um, uh, pilots. You know, it's crash sites where they know where there might be remains. Um, and they spend many, uh, many hours and many dollars every year going and, and searching for people. And then we've had recent, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, there have been uh, like some boxes of remains that have been returned from North Korea. And we, you know, put the resources into trying to identify those folks. In fact, the DPAA actually spends a pretty significant amount of time tracking down relatives from people and getting DNA so that when they do get remains, if they have an idea of who it might belong to, they've already got a database of DNA to, to match to. Why do you think we have such a strong commitment to doing this? You know, I'm not really sure. I talk about that a little bit in the book. Um, I think some of it just has to do with this philosophy that we have in the United States that's kind of... um uh, you know, we have kind of this redemptive philosophy, you know, that we don't just give up on people. You know, we're, we're the country that gives people multiple chances often. You know, you're often hearing about people who have a brand new start, you know, in their 50s or something, you know. And, and I think this, this idea of the lost sheep, you know, there's the, the biblical story about the lost sheep that the, the shepherd, uh, kind of really puts the other 99 sheep at risk to go look for this one that got lost. (laughs) And then when they find it, you know, there's all this rejoicing. So, um, so, you know, whether you're religious or not, I I think that kind of an attitude kind of permeates, you know, the United States. I mean, there's always stories on TV about lost relatives or, you know, a a dog gets lost and two years later it's found on the other side of the country, you know, (laughs) and and is reunited. And so I I think it's just part of our our culture and and our ethic. And, uh, you know, we, we don't want to give up on on people and we've made a commitment uh that if you go into combat and you, something does happen to you we're going to try to bring you back and I, and I think that makes our our um warriors more willing to go into combat because they know that we're going to do what we can to try to come get them and if we don't succeed we're still going to keep trying to bring them home to their family yeah i i would think that i mean i've never been in, in the military myself but uh i i would think that uh, for those uh, pilots, for those uh, soldiers who are in armed conflicts like that, just knowing that fact, just knowing that that's the the culture to uh, you know to to bring them back if the worst happens, I don't know. I think it would just give me a little bit of uh, not, not confidence, but it is just you know a, a good feeling about what I was doing and what I was being asked to do. But in this particular case, the story that, that you tell is about a, uh, a Navy pilot, Willie Sharp. Yes. So, yeah, he was uh, shot down in the early days of the uh, Vietnam conflict. So, in, uh, so it was November 18th, 1965. And uh, he was on a bombing mission over North Vietnam and got hit. And, uh, and there had been some cloud cover on the ingress to the target. And so when he first got hit and started heading back towards, uh, back towards the Gulf of Tonkin, he didn't know if he was, uh, you know, over land or over water. <laughs> so, and obviously he wanted to get out over the water, you know, because he had a much better chance of survival if that happened. So, and the thing that's interesting about this ejection wasn't just his story, but when he first got into trouble, 
there was a, a Navy destroyer in the Gulf that was monitoring all of the all of the mission transmissions and uh, and you know providing air, kind of air traffic control services, if you will. And when Willie first made his uh, first call that he was in trouble, somebody started recording all of the radio transmissions. And of course, you know this was back in the days when we had the big reel-to-reel tape players, you know. Yep. And so, but um, but anyway, after after everything was said and done, and uh, he wound up actually going back to this ship that was recording the the radio transmissions, and uh, spent a couple days on the ship. And before he left, they presented him a copy of the tape. And so I actually have about a 30-minute recording. It's all digitized now, but I have a 30-minute recording of all the radio transmissions during the rescue. So, um, And it's pretty amazing. And some of it is very, very hard to, to understand. It's a lot of scratchiness and everything. And, um, but uh, there's some very distinctive moments you know, on the tape where he's like making his mayday call and he's finally in his raft and some things like that. So, and, and it wasn't the simplest of pickups either you know it wasn't like oh he's in the water oop we've picked him up and we're done you know that was much more um involved and dramatic than that so yeah i think that um it's amazing that that record exists having that recording is is kind of uh, i guess kind of unique um eileen what, what was it that sort of attracted you to this particular story and, and wanting to make it known to a broader audience well, I started with, uh, I actually was working on an F-8, or a story about the F-8 aircraft. Um, and as part of that, I was watching some YouTube videos because I was trying to understand what the engine sounded like because some, some of the pilots and maintainers had mentioned this to me, you know, how the engine sounded. So, And as I was looking for YouTube videos, I tripped over a video that somebody had put together. It's been taken down since, but somebody had put together a video based on the radio transmissions. And I was, I, I just found the whole thing very, the story very compelling and fascinating and I and I tracked down Willie Sharp um, he's still alive and uh, and he agreed first to do a magazine article but the more I started researching and putting it together it just kept getting longer and longer and longer and you know most magazines want your article to be 3,000 words long or less and and there was just no way I was going to tell this story in 3,000 words you know and and as I did more and more research I also started to discover this whole kind of hidden story about um uh, you know, combat search and rescue and how that all came about. You know, we really didn't have any search and rescue in World War II and then in World, I'm sorry, in World War One, and then in World War Two. you know, we finally started building our capability. Um, but we had to learn a lot from UK. Uh, we actually didn't really have any combat search and rescue capability when we first started the war. We learned a lot from them. We bought some of our own equipment. And then, you know, there's just this whole fascinating history that led us into Vietnam where, once again, we didn't really have a whole lot of capability anymore and had to kind of build that back up again. And I think that was an important part of Willie's rescue because there were some things that happened during his rescue that were were finally things that were falling into place to bring us back to the capabilities that we had had, you know, like in the Korea time frame. And, uh, and, and then there was the whole, you know, again, not leaving people behind. And, and there were some things that, that happened to Willie that, you know, later on, uh, you know, he had some um, reactions to, you know, his, his uh, incident. And, and that kind of led me down the path of looking at PTSD 
and uh, and and thinking about you know we the leaving no one behind isn't just bringing people back from the war itself. It's also what we do once they get back and trying to make people whole again who perhaps aren't whole anymore. And uh, you know whether that's a physical or uh, you know a, or a mental you know kind of injury or a moral injury. People are starting to use that term. And then that kind of led me down the path of okay, and now we continue to look for people because obviously there were some stories in my book uh, that I cover where they were you know looking for people in Vietnam that they couldn't find, and then of course going back and and trying to find some of those people later. So um, so the whole thing kind of you know you know like I said it's it's not just about getting people out of there in the first place, but this whole kind of continuum of making sure that we don't leave people behind, that we continue to look for them and look out for them and take care of them even after they come back. So. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't even considered that part of it is after they came back. Uh, it seems to me that, I don't know, years ago when, I don't know, I first in, encountered the uh, post-traumatic stress issue, it almost seemed like uh, people didn't really appreciate the reality of that or what it meant. It just seemed like there were people that say, ah, you know, get over it. You know, it's uh, that's the past. Just, you know, go forward. But I mean, as we know, it's not that simple, and it requires a a real commitment. How is he doing these days? Oh, he's doing fine. So yeah, he uh, yeah he never had any like major issues in terms of being able to you know function in society or anything like that. I mean, he was yeah. a he was an airline pilot, you know, after he got out of the navy. Huh. So yeah, and and some of what happened didn't happen until much later in his life either. And that's another thing, you know, that not all post traumatic stress happens right away. Um, uh, and in fact, uh, t- you know, twenty years ago there were a lot of World World War II veterans, for example, that started having post traumatic stress for the first time. They had just sort of put all that aside and it wasn't until much later in their life I think maybe when they have time to reflect on things or think about things and they're not busy going to work every day you know then then suddenly these things start to you know start to come forward so um so uh, so yeah it's uh you know there's I think anybody who's been in any kind of traumatic situation I think at any time you know can have that come back to the to the surface depending on the circumstances but but no he's doing fine I mean he's very um he's a wonderful guy <laughs> you, you would love talking to him yeah, yeah maybe we yeah. should yeah Excellent. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but that's not the only book you've written you've written The Propeller Under the Bed um which of course is a uh, sort of intriguing uh, book title. What's that one about? So that one is, it's, it weaves together two stories, kind of like my current book. Um, in this case, my dad uh, designed an airplane when he was in college. Uh, he was a pilot, an Air Force pilot. And, and uh, anyway, when he was finishing up college, he designed an airplane to uh, set a world distance record. So it was a, a project, you know, a senior project kind of thing. And uh, it was a uh, aircraft that weighs less than 500 kilograms, so basically 1,100 pounds. So, And um, he always meant to, to build the airplane and set the record, but, you know, things kind of got in the way. And so finally, the airplane finally flew 45 years later <laughs> for the wow. first time. And then he set the record in 2010 when he was uh, 82 years old. So, you know, so, you know a, lot of, a lot of persistence there. So, and, uh, and, of course, all along the way, you know, the whole um, experimental aircraft movement was, you know, maturing and evolving. And, and so I, I kind of weave those two stories together, the, the experimental aircraft movement and the, you know, that began in the United States 
United States really pretty much about the same time that airplanes started flying. You know, people started building airplanes in their garages, and and uh, so brought those brought those two stories together to show, you know, how the industry has you know kind of shaped general aviation, and gen- you know, there's kind of a synergy there. And uh, you know, talking about some of the famous people in the home built industry, and then of course using my dad's story to kind of kind of drive the the book, if you will. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I'm sort of getting the a sense for uh, your your current plane is a decathlon, right? Yes, you're you're flying the decathlon. That's um, an exciting aircraft. I've flown in one once, yeah, just just once, which was uh, quite exciting. You so you must really enjoy it. I do, I do. I um, I like flying tail draggers, and then I when most days when I go up, if the weather's good, I try to do at least a few loops and rolls. So yeah. <laughs> Max, do you fly tail draggers? Yes, I've done some teaching in uh, tail draggers in the past, but I've always believed in uh, specialization. So uh, fairly early in my uh, uh, flight construction career, I decided to specialize in the the glass cockpits, and that's when I stopped teaching in the uh, in the tail draggers. Yeah, do you miss that? Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed, um, you know, kind of understanding all the, the dynamics uh, to them and how all the, the, diff- the forces are different there as, it, you know, as you're taking off and landing. So, yeah, I, I kind of like the fundamental challenge of it. And speaking of tail draggers, you know, my experiment on Instagram where I got a hundred and some odd people who liked a stupid A-10 picture with the shark's mouth. I put up a lovely picture of a yellow Piper Cub with someone sitting in the back of it waving at me the other day. And that's gotten more pictures, more likes than the A-10. So I really feel like there's good in the world again, because I was really concerned that. But so, yeah, tail draggers are everything. Two great airplanes. Yep. For sure. So, Eileen, what uh, what does the future look like for you? You, you do some speaking engagements, um, I understand, although maybe that's um, not very active these days? Yeah, I had hoped to. I, I do a little bit of speaking. Uh, most of my speaking to date has been, you know, uh, volunteer uh, presentations like at Oshkosh. Um, I've spoken pretty regularly at Air Venture every year for about the last six, seven, eight years um, about various topics. Um, a lot of that's on hold, though, like you said. Um, I'm trying, I'm looking for more opportunities like this, you know, uh, podcasts and Zoom. Uh, but there were several things that I had hoped to do, you know, in conjunction with my book that are all on hold right now. So. But I do enjoy public speaking, and, and uh, I've got a, a range of topics that I can talk about. Yeah, I, I hope uh, I hope Oshkosh, I hope Sun and Fun is able to return next year. That would be uh, just, I don't know, devastating. I mean, it was uh, devastating enough that, you know, both of those events uh, were essentially lost for this year, for 2020. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I hope it's just a one-year hiatus. I, I want to go to Aviation Nation or Aviation Nation. Aviation Nation. I, I want to see. I want to see Edwards Air Show. Yeah, we we're doing a. Um, I forget what they call it. It's kind of a combined event this year. So yeah. Well, you're doing a socially distanced drive-in air show, like. Like, Something like uh, that. that, yeah. They're doing like some virtual events because um, you know a lot of the a lot of military air shows is about outreach to the public and and uh, well, yeah. so they're doing some virtual events. You know, well where where they will you know like talk to kids in schools and and stuff like that. And then uh, and then my understanding is they're planning to have some some flyovers where I assume they'll take off from Edwards and kind of fly around the Antelope Valley. But, yeah, you could make some good noises. 
Yeah, well, yeah. I mean that they've got they've got enough aircraft that would I'd actually pay attention to the flying stuff, not just the stuff on the ground. Yeah, yeah. you know, when you get a B two and a B one and a one thirty five and KC forty six and all that other stuff that lives out at that lovely airport, that dry lake bed, it's kind of awesome. What was your most interesting flying experience at Edwards? Oh well, that would be really hard. Hard to say. Um, you know, I think one of the most fun flights, I, and, and this wasn't necessarily one flight, but multiple flights. Um, we used to do spins in the A-37 that we had at Test Pilot School. That airplane's long gone. So, um, But those flights were just, I mean, it was a real, if you remember the expression, e-ticket ride at, at Disney. I mean, that was an e-ticket ride. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember one flight in particular where, um, where we were up doing inverted spins and... Um, and as soon as we rolled, let's see, we rolled inverted, and uh, the pilot kicked in the rudder, and I don't remember which direction we were we were spinning, but uh, as soon as we entered the spin, both engines flamed out, oh. and the cockpit just lit up like a Christmas tree. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember saying something like, "Ooh, flame out," you know, or something, you know? And, you know. And I knew it wasn't dangerous because we would do these things right over the lake, but you know, we're right by the base. You know, we can go back and land easily. And and uh, anyway, we do the spins, we do like six turns, recover, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we have a chase airplane that that's uh, that's chasing us as we spin down and and uh anyway we pull out at the bottom and the pilot goes oh look both engines failed and i was <laughs> like you just now noticed that you know, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah so um so we turn towards the lake bed uh you know he's telling the chase plane what's going on we turn towards the lake bed and fortunately both of them restarted so but the thing that was really crazy about edwards was you know at most places if something like that happened you'd go home but at edwards we were allowed to have one dual flame out and still climb back up and do it again <laughs> so, so, you know, those, wow. those are the kinds of things that I really remember, some of the, the crazy rules that we got to fly under that let us do things that you would never do in an operational aircraft. So. I, I can't imagine flat spinning an A-37, especially the ones that I know that at Edwards that had all of the tanks underneath them. Yeah. But that's, that's, we actually had A-37s for the Pennsylvania National Guard on my dad's, on my dad's apron. You know, and that it was one of my favorite airplanes. It was sort of a little mosquito, noisy little thing, but very cool. But yeah, I can imagine a red and white one inverted spinning. That's a lot of good for you. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks. Eileen, I'm guessing you have quite a few more books in you. Have you given thought to maybe what what's next in the queue? Yeah, I've got several ideas. Um, the one I'm really hoping to write next is uh, actually about the the women of my generation who uh, kicked down the doors for women to be able to fly combat aircraft. So, because uh, that that happened in 1993, and you know, I think a lot of people have forgotten that. You know, they don't realize like when I very first came in the Air Force, I couldn't even. I mean, I'm sorry, when I first graduated from high school, I couldn't even go to the Air Force Academy. You know, that didn't start until 1976. Uh, and so, you know, I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten that history. They're just so used to seeing people like, the, you know, Captain Beowulf, who flies the F-35 now. And they just think women have always been fighter pilots, you know. And, but, yeah. and, and the, the Navy just graduated their first strike woman as a strike pilot. And that was, what, a couple of weeks ago that she finally graduated flight school for strike. So 
there's still a long way to go. So, I mean, it, it's really kind of amazing that we have demonstration pilots that are women and Thunderbirds that are women, and there's still a long way to go. Yeah. In the case of the Navy, that was actually the first female, African-American female okay. strike pilot. Right. So, yeah, yeah. 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 But still amazing it took them that long to get there. So, yeah. Yeah. I was surprised that, you know, when I saw that news, I was I was just kind of shocked <laughs> that that had just happened. Yeah. So at, at the base, uh, maybe tell us a little bit, Eileen, about, um, you know, the role that you had there. So I've had several tours at Edwards. So, you know, back in the day when I was young and getting to fly airplanes, I was, uh, I was pretty much just a vanilla flight test engineer. And, and what does that mean exactly, a flight test engineer? Just for our listeners who may not be aware. Yeah, so it's, it's, so it's not a pilot. You don't have to be a pilot to be a flight test engineer. My eyes weren't good enough to go to pilot training, so this was kind of the, the next best thing. Um, because, again, back in the 80s, I couldn't fly in fighter aircraft uh, as a woman, but test airplanes aren't fighter airplanes. They're, they're, not op, you know, they're not coded as fighter airplanes. So I was able to fly like in the back of F-4s and F-16s and stuff. And, and a lot of my job would depend day-to-day you know, on the particular mission. Uh, you know, some days I was really just along to kind Kind of capture pilot comments and and uh, you know make sure the you know that we were doing all the right test points. I might write down some data, you know, hand handheld data in case the data recording systems failed. Um, I might write down times of significant events so we could go back and look at tapes and and things like that. So um, other days uh, I might be sitting in a control room, uh, and other days I might be running a, a, an electronic warfare, you know, a jamming pod. You know, uh, we'd be out uh, flying. I'd be in a target airplane, and we'd be trying to jam an aircraft that was, you know, doing the actual test. So, um, so again, it was a, a wide variety of things, and that was in the fighters. Uh, and then I also flew in. Uh, oh, I'm airplanes. so jealous. Yeah. I'm <laughs> yeah. so jealous. God, what a career. What? <laughs> I know, I used to think, I, I can't believe they pay me to do this. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Good thing you didn't tell them because they might not pay you. That's so, right. Uh, so, yeah. that's, that, as a flight instructor, I always you know, have to avoid that because, yeah, I might do it for free under yeah. some circumstances. <laughs> right, right. right. Uh, but, but what's interesting is the diversity of aircraft that you got to fly in in your career. I mean, there's a breadth and depth there that a lot of people, they go to, they go to flight school, T-37, T-38, F-16, and then they, they're out. You got to fly A-37s, and I, I, I'm sure you got into an A-7, you know, C-130s, one four. It's just that, that breadth of aircraft is just so incredible, to, at least to me, being the military aviation junkie I am. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty typical for flight test engineers, test pilots, te- test navigators to fly in lots of different airplanes because that's actually part of the the training at the test pilot school is they bring in aircraft from all over the place uh, so that that you get many different experiences so that when you go to work on a new airplane, you may have never flown that airplane or seen that airplane before. You but you can kind of look at it and go, yeah, you know this this looks kind of like a, a C one thirty. It's probably going to fly like a one thirty, but it's got these other characters characteristics, say, from a C-17 that I might expect it to, to have. And uh, so that when you when you get into an airplane, it's it's almost instantly familiar. Yeah, what a career. Yeah, fascinating. All right. Well, Eileen, I again, want to thank you for, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, good luck with the with the book. We'll have links in the show notes, of course, for, for you listening. Eileen's website, where you can find the book. And uh, again, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. 
You can visit Eileen's webpage, that's EileenBjorkman.com, for more about her books and publications and her blog. And Bjorkman is spelled B-J-O-R-K-M-A-N. Put Eileen in front of that, dot .com at the end, and you've got it. Now, the book that she mentioned in the interview towards the end that she was working on at the time, well, that's now titled The Fly Girl's Revolt. This is described as the untold story of the women military aviators of the 70s and 80s who finally kicked open the door to fly in combat in 1993, along with the story of the women who paved the way before them. So look for that, The Fly Girl's Revolt. And did you catch the name Eileen mentioned? Someone who I would subsequently interview? Well, it was Kristen Beowulf, a pilot with the United States Air Force F-35 Lightning II demonstration team. She flew the F-35 at Sun and Fun when I was there, and I had to get through several layers of security to gain access to the off-site hangar where the demo team was stationed. Bayo taxied to the hangar after her flight, and I was waiting. Unfortunately, the guy manning the recorder, well, he forgot to do something. And so the audio, much of it, was terrible. Now, I won't say who it was, but you know who you are. So thank you for listening to this Airplane Geeks replay of our conversation with Eileen Bjorkman in episode 618. Be sure to visit AirplaneGeeks.com for show notes, where you can find us on social media. You can learn more about us, even make a donation to help support the show. And you can reach us via email. That's thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. So please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody.